G'day, Dominic Barfield here. This is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop tap of podcast or Acast or wherever you listen to uh, this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, but really appreciate a couple of moments of your time to do that. Um, so joining uh, Brian and myself in the studio yet again, uh, hopefully the the background noise will uh, will, will dissipate is uh, is Dr. Chris Scudder, one of our senior lecturers here, at internal medicine, and uh, and the co-head of our internal medicine service here at the RVC. And uh, thank you, Chris, for for joining us. Thank you, Dominic, for inviting me. We we uh, we spoke a little bit off air that, that I invited him before and then and then didn't actually invite. So I'm very sorry about that, Chris. In front of all our listeners, and uh, and hopefully we'll make amends because I think we might uh, revisit this topic um, again in the future actually. And and so what what I'd like you to talk about because you very kindly spoke to our group about oral hypoglycemic agents because uh, your background is is uh, in obviously internal medicine, but diabetes is your uh, well you did your PhD on and and your your interest. Yeah, feline diabetes, feline hypersomatotropism, um, all things beta cell and insulin is right up my street. Very good. So so maybe I could ask um, at the moment, like the, the oral hypoglycemic agent's been around for a while um, as far as people are concerned, um, but I suppose the new kids on the block as far as um, managing diabetes for uh, our animals. So can I ask, what, what, what do we have available to us and um, and w- what are they and how do they work? There's one licensed in the UK um, just last month, so in November 2023. Um, and it's of a class of family called the SGLT2 inhibitors or sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors. Um, the way they work is um, they act at the level of the proximal tubule of the kidney and they're inhibiting the reuptake of glucose. So the consequence of that is increased glucose um, excretion in the urine and the hope is that lowers blood glucose to the extent where beta cells um, are no longer being exposed to the toxic effects of hyperglycemia, they recover their function, and then you can start to secrete your own endogenous insulin again. There have been other oral hypoglycemics trialed in cats, um, but none anywhere near as successful as this family. So, so why, um, why is, it, so is, it, is it more species-specific, these transporters? No, nope, um, the SGLT2 inhibitors are present in um, humans and cats and dogs, um, so multiple species. There are also the SGLT1 inhibitors um, that are present, which are predominantly located in the gastrointestinal tract. Again, they are located in the gastrointestinal tract of multiple species as well. Um, And they're important to be aware of, um, predominantly because these drugs, whilst predominantly acting at the level of the kidney, will have some side effect at the level of the gastrointestinal tract, which I'm sure we will come on to. Okay, very good. Um, so when, when, should we, when should we use uh, these drugs? I and mean, what patients are we going to consider using them? Are these for newly diagnosed diabetics or are these for uh, animals that are on uh, a type of insulin at the moment that you're wanting to swap out so this family of drugs are best suited to cats not dogs because of the different type of diabetes cats predominantly get compared to the type of diabetes um, which is the predominant form in dogs so cats have a variant which is more akin to type 2 diabetes so that's a type of diabetes that occurs through progressive insulin resistance and progressive beta cell dysfunction and if we can remove some of the beta cell dysfunction then hopefully their return to insulin secretion again um, 
uh, comes back. So they're best suited to newly diagnosed um, diabetic cats. You can use them in cats that have been previously pre-treated with insulin, but the um, risk of adverse effects is slightly higher in that group. Um, and there's an easy explanation for that. So as I've said already, the goal is, is to lower blood glucose to a level um, which is no longer toxic to the beta cells. So these drugs are entirely dependent on the beta cell to be able to produce insulin once again. So imagine you have a newly diagnosed, you might call it a virgin diabetic cat, and that diabetic cat has not been diabetic for very long, and the hope is, is you can return to an, a state of normal insulin production by those beta cells. So if you remove the excessive glucose, those beta cells recover. Now envisage a cat who was diabetic and diagnosed over 12 months ago and has been receiving insulin for over 12 months. And the blood glucose curves in that cat will have allowed that cat to sometimes be within the normal range, but quite often to be high. And that cat has been hyperglycemic for a prolonged period of time. We know that prolonged hyperglycemia is detrimental to the beta cells and they may ultimately go through the phase of dysfunction and actually become so damaged they go through apoptosis. So we imagine a prolonged diabetic cat having a lower beta cell reserve than those newly diagnosed diabetic cats. But it's a spectrum. Some cats will hold on to those beta cells for a very long period of time. We've known diabetic cats go into remission five years after their diagnosis of diabetes. But we also know that some diabetic cats will lose their beta cell reserve fairly readily. So currently the recommendation is it's best suited to those newly diagnosed diabetic cats, but you can use it on those that have been pre-insulin treated, but it's probably best suited to those that have not been receiving insulin for a particularly prolonged period of time. Is there any way, Chris, that you can actually test for that, test for reserves that the, the cat has, um, even experimentally? That would be the pot of gold at the, gold at the end of the rainbow. So um, we would love to try and identify a biochemical parameter parameter which helps us identify those cats that do have some endogenous insulin secreting capacity. So the most useful um, test in human medicine would probably be to measure C-peptide. So when insulin is um, made, um, it's there's alpha and beta um, uh, chains and there's a C-peptide which um, is attached onto them and um, before insulin is released the C-peptide is removed from the um, alpha and beta changed and then co-released with the insulin um, and so and there's a steady stream of C-peptide secretion into the circulation from beta cells um, and it's less variable than that of endogenous insulin. So if you were able to measure C-peptide, you would have an idea about the endogenous insulin secretion capacity of that individual. But as yet, that's been a very challenging assay to make for cats. So unfortunately, no. Thank you very, very much. That's very comprehensive. Um, <laughs> as far as so, so if you're going to use this in a newly diagnosed cat, and I know you don't have um, first-hand experience with this, but is the idea is there a set dose to give or is it similar to insulin as in there's a, a, a range of doses depending on the response that you get? It's a fixed dose. Um, so it's a, a one milligram per kilo set dose. Um, and there seems to be currently very little advantage to stray from that set dose. Um, and the way Semvelgo um, has been designed is 
it's a liquid and it has a syringe that comes with the packaging and on that syringe is actually the weights of the cat so very similar to some of the other liquid medications where you draw it up on a what is the weight of that cat basis uh, and and you stick with that set single um a concentration of dose. Are these once a day medications or twice a day? Once daily, oral, um, can be given onto food or can be given directly into the mouth. And do you have to worry about a similar um, a regime of when you feed your 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 cat as well? I know it's quite hard with cats in general, but but do you, do you know what I mean? Are you meant to sort of divide their meals or give it at the time when they're when they're eating to make it more efficacious? There doesn't appear to be a huge change in oral bioavailability with and without food. So it tends to peak about, the serum concentrations tend to peak about three and a half to four hours um, after it's been orally, orally administered. And that seems to be similar if that's given with or without food. So the recommendation is to just try and give it roughly the same time of day. Okay. Yeah, And, and with when you're feeding them, ideally, or not really it, uh, it seems to be quite palatable from um some of the um, experiences of others that i've heard um so um it may be easiest for some cats to give it directly onto food um but um some cats seem to tolerate it if given it directly into their mouths as well so it's whatever works for that individual and so with with, with this are they what are the what are we trying to monitor if we decide to go down this path of of giving oral hypoglycemic agent so i suppose like if we're giving uh, exogenous insulin we want to at some point look at a curve of, of how that's having an effect and peaks and troughs but what, what are our um, markers I suppose of how this is working in that individual patient? That is a very good question. Um, it appears as though there um, isn't really a place for blood glucose curves when these drugs um, are administered. Um, the reason for that is they seem to be very reliable at producing normoglycemia in cats and they achieve normoglycemia between 7 and 14 days after the start of the treatment. So if you do a blood glucose curve in these cats, what you find is almost a flat line of blood glucose. So doing those curves is no longer as informative. Now, it may well be that you want to do some spot checks of blood glucose to ensure that that individual cat is achieving normoglycemia on that drug, because there may be the odd cat where that doesn't occur. But for the vast majority of cats, that will occur. So the blood glucose curve is no longer that useful. So what we're really going to be honing in on is looking at the clinical signs of these cats. So what is their weight doing? Um, are they having a decrease in their thirst over time? Um, and um, you might consider returning back to the idea of measuring fructosamine. Um, so the reason why fructosamine might return as a parameter to monitor is those cats that are flatlining, but they're tending to flatline a blood glucose concentration, which is a bit higher than our ideal. So we're not looking for their variability over the course of the day that you would do with a blood glucose curve, but you're looking for their variability over the course of seven to 14 days. And so that fructosamine might be a more useful parameter engaging where their glycemic control is in these cats. And do we, do we know that, um, do these work synergistically as in, say for example, if after a period of time, so a few months, um, that your fructosamine levels indicate that you don't have good glycemic control, is the idea then to stop your hypoglycemic agent and switch to a, an insulin or add an insulin 
in addition to the oral hypoglycemic agent or is this too far-fetched we am i is this known i would suggest um to the as the mechanism of the SGLT2 inhibitors is entirely dependent on endogenous insulin, there will be a cohort of cats that do not produce enough endogenous insulin to achieve normoglycemia. So there will be a group of cats where this question does arise. I think the safest thing to do at the moment would be to probably go with insulin monotherapy rather than dual therapy. Um, we have vastly more experience of that at the moment. And when you combine these drugs, there is an increased risk of hypoglycemia which may be clinical so for that individual cat with the knowledge we currently have the safest approach would be to switch to an insulin monotherapy regimen and with the the oral hypoglycemic drugs themselves so what what are their main sort of side effects what are what are we looking out for with these patients almost as if we've decided this could be a good question and why i might have set up the sglt1 um, receptors which are in the gastrointestinal tract. So these drugs are quite potent at inhibiting the SGLT2 um, transporter which is in the kidney um, but they do have a slight offset on the SGLT1 transporter within the gastrointestinal tract and so you're less able to resorb glucose from the gastrointestinal tract. The main consequence of that is going to be osmotic diarrhea. So loose stool um, is very common. That seems to occur in about 50% of cats that are given this medication. Fortunately, over a period of seven days, um, then three quarters of those affected cats um, will actually return to normal stool, but there will be a proportion of cats, so about one in eight of all treated cats, which will have ongoing loose stool. And is that the, the only sort of side effect that's been reported? The most um, concerning and potentially life-threatening side effect um, would be um, poorly controlled diabetes, which results in diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, So that's true of all um, treatments for diabetes. What is different about this treatment of diabetes is um, because it's very effective at achieving normal blood glucose, we do increasingly come across this situation of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, meaning that the blood glucose concentration is within the reference interval, but that patient is in diabetic ketoacidosis. So to achieve the diagnosis of diabetic ketoacidosis in that cohort, you are dependent on trying to get an idea of the ketone concentration. And that can be achieved by using urine ketones or probably preferably using blood ketones. And if you have access to blood gas analysis, then also trying to get an idea what the pH of that patient's blood is. And, and it would be the same uh, or similar triggers, I suppose, you're looking for an, an, an additional underlying cause of it. So urinary tract infection or pancreatitis or some other trigger. Um, well, yes. And also the incidence of euglycemic decay or or hyperglycemic DK is most common within the 14, first 14 days of treatment. So in that first 14 days, what you're effectively doing by administering these drugs is you're increasing the energy loss into the urine. If that patient isn't producing enough endogenous insulin, then that patient has an increased energy loss. They may also have an increased free water loss, and you get this combination of dehydration, and that then accumulates into that patient feeling unwell on the back of increased energy loss, 
you increase the likelihood of um, DKA. So the drugs themselves are also um, a component to why some patients go into DKA. And when we say some patients, that figure is around about 7%. So it's a pretty pretty small number, but I suppose significant as well. It's a very good point about about being euglycemic that would definitely throw people off if you have an unwell patient um, and you don't have necessarily access to a, a blood gas it might uh, um, to, to make you think that there might be a, you know, an acidosis going on um, what what is what is the cause of, of this in the patient I was just wondering Chris if they increase the um, glucose excretion into the urine are they, are they more at risk of UTIs or that just hasn't been looked at in general when they start this medication the risk of clinical UTIs because I suppose that needs to be defined so not only having bacteria in there but an active urine sediment and clinical signs um, seems to be in the ballpark of um, the prevalence of a normal diabetic. Um, What may be an increased risk in people is non-bacterial infections as well so fungal infections Mm. Um, uh, but I suppose there might be a degree of the anatomy of people is a little bit different and so that might be a contributor um, in terms of the anatomy of a type 2 diabetic in a person might well be a bit different to a cat who is diabetic Um, but it is something to be mindful of Um, so if a patient does have lower urinary tract signs um, then it is encouraged to try and identify whether or not there are bacteria and actually get a, a sensitivity of those bacteria so we're treating them as specifically as we possibly can be. In a patient that doesn't have any lower urinary tract signs um, but may have bacteria, we wouldn't necessarily recommend intervening in those. Very good. And uh, are, there, are there more oral hypoglycemic agents going to appear on the market? And as you said before, I suppose we're not, we're not waiting for anything to uh, appear for dogs because of, I suppose, the difference of the disease in them. But are there going to be more on the market for cats as far as you aware or might not know? Well I suppose in the UK we have the one that is licensed so the drug is Velagliflozin um, and the trade name is Senbelgo. Um, there is uh, Bexagliflozin which is Bexacat that has been um, approved by the FDA um, for several months now um, and so Bexacat is available um, in the USA. Um, I'm not aware of an intention for that to come over to the UK um, and beyond those two um, drug types i'm not aware of anything in development in the veterinary field for now i, I suppose this is probably quite um marketable isn't it we're not we're, i should say we're not we're not ever trying to advertise anything but just in general because like if you're you know trying to say to someone with a with a newly diagnosed diabetic you can give them this uh, oral medication or you can inject them twice a day um i can imagine a lot of people are going to go for the the former in in that in that scenario so so in interesting times to see how this how this goes so so maybe maybe what 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 questions would you like to um know about i suppose oral hypoglycemic agents in cats like where what information do you think we we need to find out i suppose you've asked one of the good questions um but i suppose just to highlight it which cats are going to benefit most from this and can we identify any biochemical parameters which help us to make that decision. Currently the recommendation is is you have to have a cat who is deemed to be happy or healthy versus the sick cat. So that's how they're differentiated. Currently 
um, by um, the drug uh, recommendation sheet. So any patient who is unwell and diabetic at the time of diagnosis um, is not suitable for this drug family. They have to be a um, relatively well diabetic cat. So can we go beyond that um, in the future? I really hope we can. In terms of their um, DKA management, um, I suspect um, we can learn um, about how best to manage those patients that do go into DKA with time. So in a patient who is euglycemic at the time of their diagnosis of DKA, we know that they're going to have an absolute requirement for additional intravenous glucose when we start their um, insulin treatment to try and help them resolve their DKA. And there's no one size that fits all when we treat DKA. So um, there are numerous different protocols out there which either involve intravenous protocols or intramuscular protocols or intramuscular combined with subcut insulin protocols. Um, but if you are euglycemic at the time of your DKA, you have an absolute requirement to have exogenous glucose intravenously given to you, um, at least initially. So um, what is the best way to treat those cats? We'll find out. Um, do they behave differently to previously um, insulin-treated cats or um, SGLT2 naive DKA cats? We will learn. Um, the drugs themselves are probably going to continue to contribute to glucosuria for at least three days and possibly longer in some cats. So are we going to actually need to be mindful that they have a higher risk of hypoglycemia while they're on insulin? And we might need to be mindful that we need to give them more intravenous glucose during their DKA treatments than the non-SGLT2 inhibitor uh, treated cats. Um, the other big questions I have um, are in and around the cats being unwell or sick. So how do we manage a cat who's having a severe pancreatitis, so another insulin resistance factor? What about those cats that are going to go through a large surgery soon? What, how do we manage the SGLT2 inhibitors in and around those times? There are some loose recommendations in human medicine which suggests discontinuing and then starting with insulin um, as needed um, if those situations arise. But is that going to be the same for cats? Um, we don't know. What is the de best diet for these cats? Um, again, the drugs themselves are contributing to um, glucose loss. In human medicine, maybe concurrently feeding a low carbohydrate diet might increase the risk of DKA. Um, in people but cats have a completely different carbohydrate metabolism to humans so whether or not that is also true for our cats will um, be proven with time and currently there's a suggestion that you can continue to feed a low carbohydrate diet but do those behave differently to cats that are fed um, a non-carbohydrate restricted diet um, I do not know um, and then obviously no surprise from me how do these drugs work in patients with hyposomatotropism? So are they eff efficacious or not? Or is the insulin resistance too overwhelming in those cats that actually just by um, resolving their beta cell glucotoxicity, that's not enough um, for them to allow good diabetic control? So lots to look at TBC. Do you, do you know of any studies? I, I, the only question I'd written down was about diet because I think that's something that a lot of focus, I suppose, on um, uh, with with owners, or uh, you know, to try and sort of maybe sort of change that. But um, do you know of any studies sort of looking into that with these with this new um, type of drug? Not as yet.
Um, I think if a patient were to be fed um, a low carbohydrate diet, the current suggestion would be if they are sick, then check their urine ketones. But I think that is going to be true of any cat on these um, this family of medication. So owners are increasingly going to have keto sticks at home to keep an eye on their cats to ensure that if they are sick, um, it's not related to an increasing um, ketone um, concentration um, and maybe they're sick for other reasons because diabetics get sick all the time don't they and it doesn't have to be related to increasing ketones so we need to find tools where um, we can try and decide if those patients are sick through ketosis versus sick through other and probably the best thing is the owners to be doing those monitorings at home um, and I imagine that your trigger to want to get urine ketones um, is probably going your threshold of concern is going to be lower as in you'll do it sooner if they're on a low carb diet. Thank you very much, Chris. Do you think there's anything else that we need to uh, touch on in, in relation to uh, oral hyperglycemic agents as far as we know at the moment? I think just we've got so much to learn. Um, and um, I suppose the benefits um, of these drugs are widespread. Um, they are oral. They don't need needles. You don't need to do blood glucose curves. Um, there's a lot of quality of life benefits using this family of drug relative to um, asking owners to administer insulin twice a day. Um, but they're so new to the veterinary field um, that um, we as a group of veterinarians are going to have to work with one another to try and share information as quickly as possible so we can understand the best way to look after these cats. Well, thank you very much. And we'll wrap it up there. So thank you very much, Chris, for your, your time today. And don't worry, we'll, we'll get you back on the uh, on the podcast again. Um, and thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button or on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, that would be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, any anyone. We're, we're more than welcome for anyone to listen. And we'll play some show notes uh, um, on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email podcast mm-hmm, at rvc.ac.uk or follow us on at on instagram on at rvc clinical podcast until next time bye bye